Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Father, I thank you for the privilege of gathering to worship you. And as we just said, you are worthy of it all. And I ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Every heart here, every heart here, Lord. And every heart that's joining us online. Holy Spirit, would you do your thing? Would you move mightily and do for us what we weak people cannot do for ourselves? In power, I pray, in power. In power, Lord, work in our hearts through this word and change us for your glory. Give hope to the hopeless. Humble the arrogant. Recover the backslidden. Glorify your name and satisfy us with that glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. As I said last week, 2020 could accurately be called the year of the storm. Storms on the societal level, as I outlined, as well as storms on the personal level. And as I also said last week, truth be told, 2021 will have its own storms, and so will 2022, and so on and so forth. And so to prepare us for the storms that lie ahead, and to equip us to properly reflect on the storms that have already passed, I went to a text that the Lord has laid on my heart for some time for such a moment as this. What I just read, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. The simple and well-known story Jesus told of two houses, one storm with two different outcomes. I entitled the message, Christ's Comfort and Counsel for the Storms of Life. Well, because I have a lot of ground to cover... In part two, I'm not going to re-preach part one. I do want to recover just the highlights of that message. I covered the comfort piece. And the comfort that Jesus gives us from this story is this. 
that if you have been through some storms, societally and personally, and yet you're still trusting in Christ, still seeking to follow Christ, well, the comfort is this. The reason you're still doing that is because you truly belong to him. You are the real deal. You see, in the story, the second house fell. Why? Because it was built on sand. The first house, whoever stood, why? Because it was built on the rock. Jesus' point could not be any clearer. The storms of life show what we are really built on. Now what's more, a house that is truly built on the rock, Jesus Christ, it's not that it's not battered when the storms come. It's not that it's not beaten when the storms come. And we kind of filled, that, that, filled out the story and we imagine what a house would look like going through a storm, even built on the rock. Shutters flapping, gutters halfway hanging down, limbs and branches strewn everywhere, shards of glass, water filling the basement so the sump pump kicks on and all the rest. You may have been battered by those storms. You may have responded in ways that God would not want you to respond. And I outlined several ways we can do that. Or maybe you've responded right. You're just plain weary and worn out. But the comfort of the story is this, that if you're still following Jesus, and it's not just head knowledge, you say Jesus is your Savior, but you're actually following him, even if in this present season it's more like a halting limp than a vibrant walk, if that's the case, Philippians 1.6 says you can be confident of this very good thing that he who has begun to work in you will perform it through the day of Jesus Christ. And I promise you at that day, the only thing that will matter is am I found truly in Christ? Because everything else is going to melt away. Now I also kind of preach a little addendum to the service, to, the, to that sermon, holding point two for today. So let me, let me recover that addendum as well. I said that we need to develop a robust theology of suffering before more suffering comes. How we quite possibly have imbibed, all of us to some variant, to some degree, we've imbibed perhaps a distorted view of Christianity that says, in effect, you will have your best life now. Which sets you up for a fall because of wrong expectations when the storms come and they will. I did that. I prayed that. I tried Jesus. And this happened to me? Maybe none of this stuff is even true in the first place. When in fact, if we dove into Scripture what this stuff is based on, we would find that the Scripture tells us that as a Christian, you're going to suffer. Matter of fact, you might suffer a whole, whole lot. There will be storms. A Christianity that is all about hipness and coolness doesn't steal your spine to persevere when things aren't so cool and things aren't so fun. And I want to just read to you um, an excerpt from something that a guy named Matt Redman wrote. Not the musician. He's a pastor. He actually wrote this 
back in 2013 after he had a rough year. And he's applying that to what people might think of 2021 as relief from 2020. Listen to what he says. RE 2021 and the God of the coming year, he writes. God is most likely not thinking about 2021 the same way we are, as some kind of relief package from 2020. And this may sound harsh, but we deserve far worse than any trouble that came our way during the past 12 months. I do not say this lightly, he writes. And he goes on to recount all that he suffered. I'll skip that part. He goes on to say, I wrote the following back in 2013, which, to be honest, was a harder year than 2020 for us. And I can say 2020 has not been the hardest year of my life. There's been other years. But I think the following is good to remember as we approach the end of a year of pandemic and rage and suspicion and division and, frankly, the unveiling of our rank unbelief. Here's what he wrote back in 2013. Quote, it is possible the coming year will not be a good one for you. So much for your breakthrough, right? It is possible you will experience severe emotional and lasting pain because of a tremendous loss. It is possible that physical pain will be a large part of your year to come. It is possible that you will sin in ways you never thought possible. And relationships will break like the crisp, scorched grass in the heat of August. It is possible that you will lose your job and financial ruin will rise over you like a specter in the dark of the night. It is possible death will visit your door or the home of a loved one. You may wonder at the species of fish whose belly you presently inhabit. Talking about Jonah. You may find yourself in sackcloth and ashes guessing the rating of the storm that has taken so much from you. And Osteen's books be damned, you may have the worst year of days you have ever seen. And yet, Christ will still be faithful. He will still hold you, though your grip on him loosens. He will not abandon his people. He will not forsake you. The good news of the king who has conquered our greatest foe is still true in the ruins of this life, even in the storm. His love will be greater than all of our imaginings and sufferings. He will still reign. The promises of our sovereign God will remain unspoiled in the, in the heat of our longest days. And even when our palate cannot detect the goodness of our God, his mercy will not be moved. Christ will not cease to be faithful. Now, I thought that was a great bow tie to my addendum on suffering. Listen. Here is the reality. Christ is not a vaccination shot that immunizes you from all suffering, that it never comes your way if you trust Christ. What Christ is is this, a victor who is with us in the deepest and darkest storms of life. And the comfort 
I preached to you about last week from Jesus Christ is this. If you've been through storms and you are still hoping in Christ, it's because he has done a, re a real saving work in your life. Now, part two. He gives us some counsel on how to prepare for the coming storms. In other words, how to storm-proof your life. Now, when you hear storm-proof, don't think that somehow there will be no storms that, poof, they'll magically disappear. Because a rain jacket doesn't cause rain to disappear, does it? You would have no need for a rain jacket if that's what rain jackets did. Rain jackets simply keep the rain that's falling on you from drenching your body because it's a barrier. So when we talk about storm-proofing, we're not talking at all about somehow magically eliminating storms. What we're really saying is this, that when the storms come, they won't drench you to the point of drowning. That you can survive in them, and according to Jesus' words, you can even, yes, thrive in those storms. What we're talking about here is solidly building up on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Building on the foundation of the rock of verses 24 through 27. I have read about special homes in high storm areas that are built with special materials, with special technology, so that when the storms rage through, the upper part of the house may flex, but doesn't break off and fall into the water that mitigate or, or minimize the damage of the storm. Do you see where we're going with this? The Lord has some building materials for us so that when the storms come, as you grow in storm-proofness, they wreak less havoc on you. They still hurt. They're still dark. They're still terrible. But you stand, and you stand in more and more victory through those storms. Now, there's two words that crystallize what it means to stormproof your life. Two words. Trust and, 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 somebody help me out here, and obey. There's an old, chill, there's a song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Listen, let's not trivialize trusting and obeying, okay? It may be the stuff of children's songs, but it's the stuff of a mature Christian. Trusting and obeying. We're talking about dependence on God, and then obedience that flows from that dependence. Because according to this story, there is a way of hearing that does not produce trust and obedience. Yes, you may literally hear the sound waves reverberate through your ears into your eardrums, but the meaning of those sound waves does not register. It's almost like you have a child that's playing a game, a video game or some game, and you call their name out, and the sound waves of their name may reverberate through the eardrums, but they ain't hearing you, right? Or perhaps when a guy is watching a ball game and one family member wants him and he's so dialed in on that game, he hears, but he doesn't hear. That's what he's talking about here in verse 26. And everyone... Who hears these words of mine and does what? Not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
This is a person who hears, but guess what? They don't really hear. Thus, it does not produce trust and the outflow of obedience. On the other hand, there's verse 24. There is a way of hearing that does produce trust and obedience. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And in this case, you listen and you really lean into what you're hearing and the result is trust and obedience. It's, it's kind of the idea of this constant refrain through the first few chapters of Revelation where it says, he that has ears to hear, let him what? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's not saying, yo, whoever has this little flap of flesh called an ear and then this thing called an eardrum inside your ear, you people listen. He's saying, listen, you need to really listen. In other words, you need to lean into what I'm saying so that it can grow in your heart trust and obedience. There's no getting around about no getting around it. True hearing produces true faith, produces true obedience. Not, not perfect obedience, right? But it's something that you care about. Obeying God is a value in your life that you just don't confess with your lips, but you got some scuffed up shoe leather because you really are trying, and all of you limping, to follow the Lord in the sun and in the storms. Trust and obey. To storm-proof our life, we must trust and obey. We must listen to trust and obey. So my question for you then is, well, what are we to trust and obey? What do you guys think? What do you think we're supposed to trust and obey? I know we're all spread out, and it makes it seem so sterile. So let's pretend we're all packed in together like we used to be, okay? What are we supposed to trust and obey? Yes, the Word of God, specifically the incarnate Word, which is, or who is, Jesus, and then the written Word, which is the Scripture. Now, in context, this very text of Scripture records the incarnate Word Dialing, is, dialing in us in on specifically what, to, what we are to obey. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears, now finish these, this sentence with me, these words of mine. Jesus is saying, whoever hears these words of mine. Now here's what he's talking about. He's preaching a sermon like I am right now. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7. This is what you would call his grand finale, this story. This is his conclusion. So when he says these words of mine, you need to trust and obey them, he's talking about everything he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. You say, that well, there's no way you could cover that in the sermon. You're right, but I'm going to try. So this is where you need to put on your seatbelt. Summon to mind all the coffee you drank this morning, even if it makes you anxious. And imagine that you are going to a spiritual home depot. And you're going to get some of those special materials under special technology so that you can build wisely upon the rock, Jesus Christ. So we'll see how much we hit. But he starts off with the Beatitudes. And... We're going to hit the Beatitudes for the next nine weeks, so I don't have to say much here. 
but I'll say this. Can you imagine if we cherished and championed these kingdom ethics, these kingdom attitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, how much stormproofing we would bring to our lives, at least to our emotional health and to our interpersonal health, our relationship with those around us? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What if instead of self-reliance, we had God-dependence and healthy interdependence on others? God did not design you to fly solo. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What if instead of rebellion, and rebellion looks a lot of different ways. It just means you're not following God. There was repentance. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What if instead of pride and arrogance, there was humility and meekness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What if instead of longing for all the trinkets of this world, we long for more of God most of all? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What if instead of grudge holding, we were forgiveness extending? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What if we cared more about holiness than worldliness? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What if we cared more about winning a heart than winning an argument? Ouch, for all of us, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What if we cared less about being liked and more about being faithful? Man, that's some stormproofing going on if we took these Beatitudes seriously. Moving on, again, we're still in chapter 5. He says, you need to be salt. You know that passage, right? Salt's got to be salty so it can do its deal, its salty deal, right? And he says, don't hide your light under a bushel. In contrast to trying to fit in and be just like everybody else. When we try to fit in and be just like everybody else, and society is going to pressure you more and more to do that on all kinds of issues, it's like ripping the rain jacket off you. And you're going to get drenched, and you're going to suffer the storms of life in the fallen world just as much as the lost Joe, because you are, you're living just like him. He goes on to say, this is a big one right here. He says that your righteousness must exceed a Pharisee's righteousness to get into the kingdom of God. Now, that's a compliment, by the way, to the, to the Pharisees. We sometimes have a bad idea of Pharisees, but Pharisees were actually, some of them were just total hypocrites, but a lot of them were just really religious people who were doing the best they could to meticulously keep the law. They were, in fact, very righteous. He's complimenting them when he says, listen, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee to get in the kingdom. They were righteous. The problem was not nearly righteous enough for God's standard of perfection. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. But he is showing those first disciples, and by extension us as his 21st century disciples, how much we need 
The cross. We need the cross. How much we need it. See, we forget, do we not? If you just look at how much time you spent with Jesus in the last week, that will reveal your answer to this question. How much do you forget your need for Jesus? Forget about life storms. How about the ultimate storm you're facing outside of Jesus, the storm of God's righteous wrath against your sin? So when he says your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee, you'll never enter the kingdom of God, what he's trying to say is this, that as we go to the law and try to live by it as a Pharisee tried to, if we are honest, we'll realize how far short we fall of the law, right? And therefore, how much we need Jesus as our Savior, something we forget so easily. Nick is going to be rolling out the New City Catechism uh, for the kids, maybe a catechism a week or something like that, doing some video stuff and various things to get truth into our kids. You ought to memorize the New City Catechism as well. Question 15 says this, right in line with what I'm saying. The question goes like this. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Answer, to show us the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts, I can hear Titus saying this right now, and thus our need of a Savior. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying, you need me. You need the cross. You need the gospel. See, there's this great paradox in the Christian life. To move forward in your walk with Jesus, you must stay at the foot of the cross. If your experience of the gospel is only past tense, baby, it might be nothing but pretense. Because the cross is not the only the place of the ultimate transaction. He takes my sin and I get his righteousness. It is also the ongoing source of transformation. Or where I increasingly storm-proof my life. He is, in verse 25, the rock that we ran to in conversion and the rock that we must continually build upon according to these words and dig a deeper foundation and stronger first and second floor. Y'all with me? You're drinking out of a fire hose right now. I'm just trying to preach you the whole Sermon on the Mount. Chapter, I uh, know a little bit more, I think, in this chapter. I'm sorry. He goes on to say, don't commit adultery or murder. To which most of us, if we don't understand what he said, go, I'm good on that one. Never killed anybody. Haven't cheated on my spouse. I'm good. Hold your horses. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that hate or unreconciled anger with somebody is actually murder. Because that's where murder starts. In fact, he said that if you are at the altar, you're in worship, and you realize, man, I got some hate in my heart against somebody, stop your worship service, leave your gift at the altar, go make it right, then come back. We might say today, if the Spirit right now is pinpointing hate in your heart towards somebody, you ought to make a commitment when the service is over to get it right. 
especially if you're going to break bread with us and take communion. He goes on to say, whoever looks upon a woman with lust has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And by extension, the other way as well, of course, right? And this is so serious. He said, it would be better to gouge out your eye than to leave those lustful impulses unchecked. And by the way, he actually says that if anybody divorces, we need to hear this in Revolving Door Marriage America, that if anyone divorces for a reason outside of adultery, that that's wrong. And every marriage that comes after that is just a further expression of adultery. People kill their stormproofness by hating and lusting. Then he addresses the revenge mentality that says, you know, we basically have this revenge mentality. You get me, you got yours coming to you, right? We all have that. But he actually said, do not repay evil for evil. He actually said, love your enemies. This is a tall order, isn't it? Huh? It doesn't mean you don't have boundaries. It doesn't mean you have to be somebody's chew toy. It doesn't mean you fight for injustice. You don't fight against injustice for justice. But what it does mean is simply what Jesus said, don't repay evil for evil. To love your enemies. Moving on to chapter 6, he says, forgive or you will not be forgiven. And he's not talking about this. We're all good at fake forgiveness, right? Fake forgiveness. Listen, do you want fake forgiveness from God? No, you want the real deal, right? And trust me, you and I have done more to offend God than anyone's ever done, as bad as they've done stuff to us to, to offend us, right? And see, his point is this. Unforgiveness is not a good thing, to put it mildly. Unforgiveness is like blood that's gone septic. It spreads infection all through your body, and it kills your ability to fight disease. And when you have unforgiveness in your heart, it kills your ability to withstand storms. You are so vulnerable when you do that. Well, how about this? He says, lay up treasures where? In heaven and not on earth. I don't have time to develop this one, but, but basically, when we're going through storms, are we not tempted to find relief in ways that are not consistent with his will, right? So in storms, above all, remember, okay, I'm living for eternity and not for now. Play the long game when you're suffering, right? So you don't do something stupid. And remember the big picture. And then he talks about killing anxiety. You kill anxiety, how? By seeking first the kingdom of God. He says, what about the lilies? Man, I clothe the field in beauty with the lilies. And it's just a lily, just a little plant. And those birds, I feed them. So if I'm going to take care of them, I'm going to take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is what he says. And that is a massive bunker against the soul, the storms that rack our soul. Moving on, chapter 7. See, we are doing this quickly. He says, don't judge hypocritically. In other words, deal with that 
telephone pole sticking out of your eye before you deal with the speck in the other person's eye. And, and, and listen, we are really, we're madly gifted, we're madly skilled at making our logs into a speck and the other person's speck into a log, right? We are extremely gifted in minimizing and justifying and excusing and providing all kind of rationale that makes our sin not so bad as we amplify and maximize and even exaggerate the other person's sin. And when we do that, well, we're just killing our stormproofness. Now, how about this? Are you all with me? He talks about prayer. In chapter 7, he talks about prayer. He says, ask and seek and knock. He makes the point that Tina made from 1 Thessalonians 5.17 last week in her great charge that we are to pray without ceasing. Most mornings for the last several months, I have been going to Powerhouse Gym on Woodward in Highland Park with my kids since they've been home from school. Ian going, Emma going, and Claire going. And for the most part, we've been following Ian's football workouts that his coach emails out to the team uh, once or twice a month. And let me tell you, it's no joke. It is not very pleasant. This is hardcore workout. And there are times when your body, your shoulders, your chest, your legs just say, I'm done, no more. This burns too much. This hurts too much. You hit a wall. Now, if you want to build up, what do you got to do with that wall? You got to press through that wall, right? You got to punch through that wall. You got you to move right into it to that wall of pain. And he is doing that, and he's kind of bringing us along on his coattails. But he is doing that to prepare for the storms that he's going to experience playing linebacker. <laughs> the physicality he's going to dish out in tackling and the physicality he's going to receive in blockers trying to take his hat off. Busting through that wall is preparing him for the storm of contact. Now listen, I think there's an analogy here. If true conditioning does not begin until you hit that wall and then press into that wall, I just wonder if true prayer doesn't begin until we hit that wall. But I'm going to press through it. I don't think prayer works. Why pray? I'm not interested in all that. I don't know that true prayer actually even begins until you hit that wall and say, I'm going to bust through it. A praying life is a stormproof life. And a prayerless life is going to make you extra vulnerable to the storms that are going to come your way. So why don't you try praying? Try me. Don't try me. Try God. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing, but every in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the shalom of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Now, lest you think... Prayer, wow, um, let, me, let me finish this off, okay? Lest you think prayer is just requesting, Jesus actually had a whole lot more to say about prayer. If you actually went back in the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew chap- to chapter 6, 
you would know that he told the disciples to pray, how to pray in what's called the Lord's Prayer, or we might say the disciples' prayer. You know this prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we learn from that is that prayer, first and foremost, is worship. Not ticking off a list of requests. That prayer is first and foremost revering God as opposed to requesting from God. And I'm taking time to make this point because it's easy for all of us at times to say, well, I prayed this, this doesn't, didn't happen, so why prayer? Why pray? Because prayer does not work. And we've all thought that, right? We've all felt that. And maybe we've all been put on the prayer sidelines because of that. But can I be real? When we think like that, and again, we all have, we reveal that in that season anyway, we have reduced prayer to the S in the prayer acrostic acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then finally, oh yeah, we can request a few things, supplication. That we've reduced it just to the S and not the fuller picture of prayer. And worse yet, in that season, we have reduced our conception of God to that of being a divine bellhop there to answer our request, as opposed to the king who dwells in inapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6.16, who is now approachable through the Son of Light made flesh, Hebrews 4. And what's even more, we have then reduced prayer into a transactional thing instead of a relational thing, a means to get some things we might want or might things we want to see happen as simply a, opposed to a means of meeting with God. And what's even more, Saying prayer does not work, so I'm not going to pray anymore, is a little bit like saying, well, I'm not going to talk to my spouse anymore, or I'm not going to talk to my friend anymore, or whatever, because in all of my communication with that person, sometimes they don't answer requests that I make. How far is that relationship going to go? It's going to stunt that relationship. It's going to kill that relationship. It's going to deaden that relationship. And thus it is with a prayerless life, right? It will stunt our growth. It will deaden the relationship. But a praying life will grow your stormproofness. So here, here's the thought. I don't know who this is for. Why don't you pray every day this week without asking a single licking thing? You're just going to praise. You're just going to worship. You're not going to ask. You're going to ascribe him the glory that he is due. And see what the Spirit begins to move, how he begins to move in your heart. Well, I, I got to finish this off. Watch out for false prophets, he says. Some people seem like they major on finding false prophets, right? And other people have no heart for saying, you know, there are such a thing as false prophets. And false prophets, when their teaching is imbibed, sets people up for a fall. I planted that seed, and I didn't get my return that the 
person promised. Oh, well, I guess God's not true on his word. No, that wasn't God giving that promise. Watch out for false prophets. Nobody likes to do that. Watch out for false professions, he says. People who say the right thing about the gospel, but do not truly have a heart that's been changed by the gospel. He actually says in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. That, I, you don't want to hear that. So make sure you're not the person who can say the right things, but as yet a heart that is dead in trespasses and sins. And then he ends with this. Make sure you really are on the right path. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, he says. Jesus said this, right? It's not me. And few there be that go in thereat. When you do that, when you make sure that you're on the right path, it sort of puts storms in perspective. It does. Wow. I really am a child of the king. I really am a saint. I really have been chosen from the foundation of the world. I really am a new creation in Christ. I'm adopted, redeemed, beloved, and all the rest. That doesn't take away storms. That doesn't take away the sting of storms. That doesn't take away sometimes the staggering darkness of storms. But it is to say that as your shutters flap and your gutters fall and the branches sway against the house and the shards of glass go everywhere and the sump pump kicks on and all the rest, that you nonetheless are built on the rock. That you really are the real thing. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. That's how you stormproof your life. And again, I know this was like drinking out of a straight fire hose, right? Or a buckshot. You just feel like, man, I just got shot all over me. I, I get it. I get it. But again, going back to the analogy I used, we just went to Spiritual Home Depot. Was there anything on the shelves that you thought, wow, I'm not really trusting and obeying that? Is there anything? Okay, that's God's love for you. That's the spirit working because you, you're really his child. Because the reality is you will experience storms in this fallen world. It's a saga of humanity. We do walk through the valley of shadow of death. We do live in the wilderness of pain. But the comfort is this, that if in the midst of all the storms you've experienced, you're still following Jesus, even with a limp, it's because you belong to him. And you can be confident in this very good thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Now, would you heed his counsel? Will you trust and will you obey in both the storms and the sunshine? This is the word of the Lord. May the Spirit apply it, tailor-made in each heart, so that whatever lies ahead, there is a growing stormproofness built on the rock, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you would take this word and make it construction materials for those who are in Christ who need to resume that building project. And Lord, for those who are yet on sand, would you call them to the rock through faith and repentance? 
the Spirit of God, thank you that you are the ultimate creature, not me. I'm just a vessel. I'm just trying to, best I know how, share what you laid on my heart from this text. So, Spirit, I pray that you would work in overdrive in our hearts and that even as we break bread now and sing, um, you would grow in our hearts that trust and that obedience, ultimately for your glory. And I ask this in the name of your Son, the incarnate Word, Jesus.